This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the whale probe first saw this in theaters. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show. We're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izex. Hi. And this week we have special guest star who does his own Star Trek podcast called The Beige and the Bold, which I'd recommend checking out. Both of us have also guest starred on that at one point or another. So please welcome Van Velding. Hey, what's up? So, uh, you got, you know, you got also Nine Deeps of Space as well. I do. That that was on hiatus. But, uh, yeah, no, it's just another uh, friend of mine hadn't seen Star Trek, so we opted to watch it together. And um, from TOS, from the original series, and now we're into Next Generation. So this is my second time watching this movie for a podcast. Well, uh, hopefully we are not covering too much of the same ground, but we'll see. <laughs> Star Trek Four has a lot of aspects to it. It's got a lot of facets. Yeah, it's going to be a real test of just how deep we can go on the whale movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. The more uh, humorous of the Star Trek movies, perhaps, as well. Yeah, maybe we could maybe we could talk about humor, the nature of humor, and how it makes us feel. So, of course, this episode <laughs> we are covering Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home. Finally, got there. We're like more than halfway through the movies now. It's the one with the whales. Who calls it the Voyage Home? It's the one with the whales. Yeah, it's the whale movie. Yeah, Star Trek IV: Whale Time. Uh, originally released in November 1986, so we're finally into movies that happened when I was alive. Hooray! Uh, story was by Leonard Nimoy and Harvey Bennett. Screenplay by Steve Merson and Peter uh, Curies. Um, basically, most of the people who worked on some of the last movies. Uh, the writers of this went on to write some stuff called Back to the Beach and Anna and the King, which I am vaguely familiar with. Oh, the, uh, the King and I, but it sounds like an adaptation, maybe? Yeah, an adaptation of The King and I, which I don't think I saw that version. This uh, movie was also directed by Leonard Nimoy, who directed the uh, last one, but this one he's also starring in, which made it more difficult to direct. And uh, this movie concept was Nimoy's. The studio said that they wanted him to come up with something and direct something. He was given a ton of actual freedom on this project, as opposed to the last project, which was pretty set in stone, because both because the studio didn't want to take a ton of risks on it, but also because of the narrative needs of Spock being <laughs> dead. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to bring a guy back from the dead in, what, 86? You have to establish that. You're, you're, you're no longer a corpse, so you can kind of do whatever you like this time. You can't just have Spock come out of a shadow and reveal that he's still alive <laughs> and not answer that question for two years. <laughs> no, that, that stuff wouldn't fly in 1986. True, true. Though, uh, something of that sort kind of happened on Lower Decks recently? I mean, yeah, it's 2021. Yeah. <laughs> now no one cares why anyone comes back from the dead. We're too used to it. Narrative yes. death no longer matters. Maybe uh, in my writing I should uh, bring back narrative death. Then every death sticks forever. <laughs> so, of course, as for the cast, we still have all the original cast from the show and the last couple of movies. Uh, Robin Curtis shows up for one scene as Savick, the last time Savick or her shows up. Uh, she just gets left on the planet. Or uh, XP uh, Valeris shows up in Star Trek VI. Yeah, the bargain bin version of the bargain bin version of the original Savick. 
Yeah. <laughs> we also have uh, Mark Leonard back as Ambassador Sarek, Spock's father. Uh, we have Brock Peters playing Admiral Cartwright, who we will later see as uh, <laughs> Benjamin Sisko's father in DS9. Maybe this is like his granddad. I mean, you know, or maybe it's just... I, you know, he's also Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek VI, I think. Yeah, he yes. shows up for Cartwright twice. I think it's interesting because Star Trek reuses actors a lot, but it's not do. this often that they reuse actors playing humans with no makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, maybe he's just a good actor. I mean, he is. Yeah. And then the uh, main guest star of this particular movie is Catherine Hicks playing Dr. Jillian Taylor, the whale biologist. <laughs> I didn't load up my Futurama quotes. So yep. <laughs> I'm, out of, I'm out of jokes. So, uh, yeah, she's uh, been in a number of things, including uh, Seventh Heaven. Who's the second person from Seventh Heaven we've gotten so far. Yeah. yeah. As well as a lot of other shows that I am not familiar with, like Ryan's Hope and Tucker's Witch. But she was in, like, the, uh, the TV series for The Bad News Bears. Yeah, she also was in the original Child's Play movie. She got fairly well-known around this time period for playing Marilyn Monroe in Marilyn the Untold Story. And she was very recently in a movie that I just had to mention and look up because it's called Ghost Phone. (laughs) I think there was a uh, Dennis Quaid movie like that with a telescope. (laughs) If I'm guessing my my plots correctly. I'm assuming a lot from Ghost Phone. This seems, okay, the full title of the movie is Ghost Phone, Phone Calls from the Dead. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, that could be like, you know, uh, a discount sixth sense or it could be just ghosts screaming at you okay i watched the trailer because mm. i was very curious and the tra- i wouldn't even recommend doing that because the trailer was difficult to sit through um wow. a guy's girlfriend dies and then starts calling him on his phone and it's not even a oh my god how do you deal with death thing there's some sort of death conspiracy or something else and it ties into some sort of app that they were very heavily trying to advertise that i didn't bother looking up so hmm so there's a death phone ghost app? Yes, there's some sort of ghost phone app. She's blowing up his oh. phone even though she's dead. I mm-hmm. dated guys like that. Um, so yeah, she was in Child's Play? She was in the original Child's Play? Yeah. All right. And then as pictures in every other Child's Play, she's credited as, as in a photo in every single other <laughs> one in her <laughs> credits. Keeps what coming back. What character could she play? Karen Barkley. Doesn't help. The only character I know from Child's <laughs> Play is Lon Suter, uh, the guy whose name I can barely remember, who's a great actor, uh, who does the voice of Chucky, but who was also in Star Trek Voyager. Uh, Brad oh. Dorf. Brad Dorf, yes. Yeah. It's okay. Like Brad, Brad something there. <laughs> but Brad Dorf will uh, be in Star Trek a lot uh, later, so. <laughs> I don't mean to get ahead now, of us. So. <laughs> now, unfortunately, uh, I, I looked around at the various you know actors and then the secondary actors and the random people that don't act, have names that show up. And I wasn't able to see, find anyone that was in the FBI, but there is an FBI agent in this one. So <laughs> I guess that can count. This is the first thing we've <laughs> hit in a year that didn't have someone from the FBI in it. Is, was Eddie Murphy in that show? I don't know. Okay. It's, he wanted to be in this movie. So. Yeah. The, uh, the biologist character was originally planned to be Eddie Murphy, but he, was suppo- he wasn't going to be a biologist. He was going to be an astronomer that found who knows what. But yeah, yeah. he didn't like the sc- I think he didn't like the, scri- the original script, so he signed on to something else and they rewrote it into this. I mean, 80s Eddie Murphy had options. Yes. That he did. It'd be anything you like. And also, this is the last time in any of these movies that Michelle Barrett shows up playing uh, Christine Chapel. 
and she apparently had a fairly major role in the original filming of the film and got cut down to exactly one line. Oh, man. Yeah, she's uh, now a commander. She you know, became a doc- full doctor for the, the motion picture, but, you know, she's been climbing the ranks here, and it's like, I'm going to be captain, and then I'm going to be super admiral. Let's show all these guys up. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if the movie's intended, but they imply a lot of rich background for these characters that directly contradicts these people who've been on the same starship for 20 years. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> Everyone else is going out there, getting ranks, getting new assignments, making friends, having kids. And then the, our crew, mostly, a few notable exceptions, are just like, eh, we're just going to chill together forever. It's a pile of commanders on this one ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eventually the entire Enterprise is just Admiral Kirk, Captain Spock, Captain Sulu, Captain Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> you guys could, like run an entire fleet yourselves but we don't want to we just want to hang out together yeah i I don't know why scotty um and kirk end up with the the futures they do and they could have just made this entire ship into a nursing home (laughs) and just just transitioned you know the enterprise dash nursing (laughs) it'd be a cruise ship for a little while you know let them enjoy their golden years but then eventually you'd get the nurses on board and just park in orbit somewhere (laughs) Fewer stage magicians. More I can get, get some uh, some random uh, you know cloud aliens to sh- uh, drop by occasionally to make their lives interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for now, simulation. Now, you know. Now, now, don't make them too excited, but they they do need to have a mystery to solve every few weeks. Otherwise, they get upset. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. So anyway, Star Trek Four. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like I derailed your cast listing. I'm sorry. We're probably going to have a decent amount to talk about with this movie, so we should probably yeah. get to the synopsis so everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah. We open in space, and a dark cylinder flies through space, encountering the Federation ship Saratoga. They attempt communication, but all attempts fail, and they must inform Starfleet that they've contacted a mysterious new device on course for Earth, because apparently that's how we're starting all of these movies. Look. I want to mention that this chump ship that has to get beat up uh, to show, you know, how dire the situation is, has a woman of color in command. That's progress. That's true. They really want to forget Turnabout Intruder ever happened very quickly. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Turnabout what? I don't remember an episode called that. (laughs) So back on Earth, the Klingon ambassador is showing some clips from the last movie and demands Kirk be handed over for the death of the Klingon crew that was on the Enterprise when it was destroyed. However, Sarek shows up in a pretty badass move and points out the Klingons, in fact, uh, destroyed a Federation ship and were illegally on the planet, among other bad things they were doing. So they really don't have anything to complain about. And I'm not really sure why the Federation is entertaining this idea when, like, the Klingons definitely showed up and definitely killed everyone on board a Federation science ship. Yes. I'm sure he's got time to speak in the itinerary. You know, that's how it works. <laughs> oh, Nance, the Klingon ambassador again. He wants to... Com- what does he want to complain about this week? Well, uh, a bunch of his people died because they were being basically pirates. So, yeah. They let Ted Cruz speak. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the Klingon ambassador swears revenge on Kirk, and we're going to get to that in about two movies. Yeah. It's very efficient, though. It's a very efficient mm-hmm. recap. Meanwhile, the crew of the Enterprise has spent three months on Vulcan since Spock was returned to his body in the last movie. In that time, they've repaired the Klingon ship that they captured and renamed it the HMS Bounty after the infamous mutiny ship. And they've also decided that it's time to head back to Earth and face the consequences of stealing the Enterprise to save Spock. They also did some remodeling inside, but 
we're not supposed to remember that. They repaired. They said they repaired the thing and remapped some whatevers and doohickeys and thingy-mabobs. They pumped all the steam out. Like, nobody knows yeah. what their ships look like <laughs> once you pump the steam out. Yeah. There's, there are at least three dozen Vulcans working on this ship constantly the entire time. They could have remodeled the thing. <laughs> Make it look entirely different if they liked. There's some questions about the size of this ship that come up throughout the epi- throughout the movie though yeah a little implicitly how many decks does it have i don't know spock now back to himself mostly is up the hill training his mind and getting back in shape i guess uh he's being simultaneously tested by a computer on physics math philosophy and all kinds of other things but he's stumped by the question how do you feel Hmm. Weird, arbitrary question that doesn't belong in a test. True, but uh, I think the uh, New Order would enjoy it, though. The ability to generate BS is a vital social adaptation. You need that lubricant, man. That's true. People ask how you feel. You got to say, I'm good. How are you? (laughs) Therefore, showing the skill of deflecting from your true emotions and pretending to care about other people. That's vital stuff, man. That's apparently a pretty uniquely American way of dealing with... uh, emotions and small talk so that says some things about this culture in the future we got here when your son dies and comes back and you ask him how he is and he says nothing for three months in a row you put it in a test (laughs) that's all he's gonna listen to yeah because his mother shows up and says that he needs to come to term with his emotions if he wants to get back to normal after everything that's happened emotions what are those and now uh, back on the saratoga the probe is coming closer and sends out a powerful signal to the ship that sounds very strange and overloads all their systems and leaves the ship without any power saratoga getting kind of janked like that i don't know this feels like it might be a trend going forward no what no look it's just it's just a big piece of geometry in space how often could that happen So back at Starfleet Command, they're getting very similar reports from every ship that has encountered the probe. And the probe's going to be at Earth soon, which uh, could cause problems. Seems to be cruising pretty fast here. Uh, you guys should have probably noticed this a lot sooner. If they if they put in a toll booth, they would at least mitigate some of the problems they have with this happening. <laughs> <laughs> this is all unknown to the crew of the Enterprise, who are taking their confiscated ship back to Earth and should arrive sometime after the probe is going to get there. And speaking of, it's arrived at Earth. Ha! Huh, it's shut down uh, all power on orbiting ships on the orbiting space dock and then sends a massive beam of something or other down into the ocean, which starts evaporating it on contact and creates massive storms across the planet. Uh, it might be uh, apt to uh, mention that all three of us, as we're recording, are experiencing storms of some sort. Yeah, I heard some thunder in the recording earlier. So. Yes. <laughs> I'm not experiencing a storm. I'm going to be experiencing a lady named Ida in about 36 hours. As the situation worsens... The president of the Federation issues a planet-wide distress call, which is not really so much a distress call as a don't-come-near-Earth call. Go away, everyone. It's kind of the opposite of a distress call, in fact. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a real bro thing to do. Like, so many planets in Star Trek could do the same thing. Everyone else in Star Trek is like, oh, wow, we totally screwed our planet. Should we, should we put up a probe for, like, our last message? It's like, no. Nah. It's like but, the Resicans okay. and no one else. Let whoever shows up next, like, find the plague. It's fine. We get horribly mangled with our death robots or energy spheres or mental psychic crystals or whatever. Special shout out to those people in Voyager who actually made a probe that did the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this, as well as many other distress calls, is picked up by the Bounty 
as well as the probe's signal, which they can't make heads or tails of until Spock recognizes the arrogance of humans who think the signal must be meant for them and not other life forms on the planet, especially being that it's aimed at the ocean. And when the signal is adjusted for density and salinity and all that other stuff, it transforms into recognizable whale song. Dun, dun, dun. Specifically that of the humpback whale, which is pretty unfortunate because humpbacks went extinct in the 21st century. I mean, you don't know. The humans could have cities in the ocean. They, they could. they could have had them. True. I imagine probe probings void the warranty on Atlantis a little bit. I love two things about this. One, Spock instantly recognizes the song of an animal that's been extinct for 300 years, which is kind of an interesting one. And also, Kirk asks if you can find humpback whales on any other planet. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there are probably rats on Vulcan. Probably. You know? He's like, no, they were indigenous to Earth. Now, sperm whales, if you wanted sperm whales... <laughs> they accuse Cleons of having fleas. They didn't say, oh... Those Cleon, Cleon flea bags, you know, they're like, oh, no, they're just earth fleas because they don't, we don't, they don't put a planet in front of it. Well, I see your point. I seriously doubt that a humpback whale made its <laughs> way on board a spaceship and then, then cross-pollinated itself to other planets the way that a rat could. They fit on a six-man <laughs> bird of prey. Spoilers. Maybe they snuck in. Ah, we've got whales again. <laughs> on in, yeah. <laughs> now, now, I will also point out that uh, there's a bunch of planets throughout the galaxy that we find uh, throughout various Star Trek series that for some reason have humans there for some reason because some alien race thousands of years ago decided to abduct a bunch of people and take them there and it's rarely like other alien species but specifically people from Earth so why not whales that is fair that is Kirk fair and Spock have seen like two or three identical Earth planets like maybe we <laughs> should go check out that planet with the Native Americans and see if they have any whales Maybe the yeah. lack of Jesus on the Roman planet uh, killed all the whales. <laughs> the whale song is um, catechisms. It's them going door to door. Now, it's, it's possible that the, the planet with the, the plague and the uh, kids that uh, lived forever, you know, might have had their whales die as well due to that whole plague business. But you never know. You can check that one out, too. The children hunted the whales to death. They never really decide to check any of these other exactly like Earth planets, do they? That's a good point that I hadn't thought of because those <laughs> planets are so ridiculous you forget they exist. Our only remaining book was Moby Dick and we decided that Ahab was a role model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't find that one after the gangster planet. Yeah. So uh, Kirk, of course, comes up immediately immediately with the solution to this problem, which is to go to past Earth and get some whales. It seems like a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Look, it's not like, where are the whales? The question is, when are the whales? I just think it's interesting how sometimes they're like, yeah, time travel is the solution to all of our problems, and sometimes it's like, well, time travel's basically impossible. Well, they are traveling around in a vehicle that was very recently... Uh, uh, owned by one Christopher Lloyd, so... Hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can't deny that. I, um, it is weird that more people don't do this. I just feel like when he's, like, getting it detailed by the Vulcans, he's like, do I want the undercoating? Yeah, Spock's dad's paying for it. Time travel worthiness? Sure, okay. Put that okay. in there, too. Yeah. So they uh, quickly contact Starfleet to let them know the plan, but they do lose the signal before anyone can tell them that it's probably a bad idea. 
The bounty <laughs> flies straight at the sun at high warp and slingshot themselves around entering time warp, which is in this movie is a really fancy computer animated sequence of floating heads that was, my God, mind blowing at the time because it used digital scans of the actor's real heads. Oh, yeah? Giant floating heads. Uh, they all awaken over Earth. It's, it's definitely 1986. They have it on a newspaper later, but they say, you know, late 20th century. And they detect whale songs coming from San Francisco because they always time travel to San Francisco. Even when they're not time traveling to the present day, they're time traveling to San Francisco. I thought Edith Keeler was in New York. Oh, yeah, they did go to New York the one time. But uh, when Cisco goes back in time, it's it's San Francisco again. Mm -hmm. And when they go back in time to meet uh, Mark Twain, it's San Francisco. Okay, I mean, the Cisco thing, they were beaming down to San Francisco anyway. But I can't explain the Mark Taint. Now, I will give uh, Enterprise points because they went to Detroit instead. But, you know. They should have gone to San Francisco. Exactly. I lost track of the time episode. travel in Enterprise. They probably wound up at San Francisco at least once. I remember there were Nazis some at, at some point. Enterprise yes. is a blur. We'll eventually get to it. Don't worry. It'll still be a blur. <laughs> so they uh, cloak the ship because they're in a Klingon ship and it can cloak. That's very convenient for them. And head in closer. Um, but there is, of course, though, a problem because the Klingon ship is not built well for time travel and the lithium crystals are decrystallizing because of the time warp. And there's no way to recrystallize dilithium crystals. That's crazy. We can't even do that in the future times. Except we can now, because as Spock points out, they could use high-energy photons created from nuclear, uh, from nuclear fission. But they don't have nuclear fission in the future because they use nuclear fusion, which is safer. But apparently if they did use it, they could do this impossible thing to their dilithium. I just want to say that another social grace that Spock seems to have forgotten in his death and resurrection is to just give us five minutes between when Scotty says something impossible and when Spock goes, no, nah, it's not. <laughs> A grace period. Show the man some respect. Yeah, just anything. It's like, you can't do this. Mm, wait, mm. I wouldn't say you uh, couldn't do it. I've heard about this one thing. and uh... So they set the ship down in Golden Gate Park, surprising two comic trash men who never show up again, and uh, decide to split into teams. Uh-huh and Chekhov are on nuke duty. Uh, McCoy, Scotty, and Sulu are in charge of making a whale tank, which leaves Kirk and Spock to find them some whales. Hooray! Now, it's at this part of the movie that I start getting really kind of curious about where exactly they are. Because I've been to San Francisco and like, I've seen some of these places. I've been to Golden Gate Park. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, I, ran, I ran an Aberrant campaign in San Francisco and I, I like maps and I looked around it. And yeah, they teleport and slow travel to a lot of places. There's Market Street. There's, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, the big triangle building. <laughs> yeah, they, they land in a park in the middle of the night and then it takes them until the morning to get into the city proper. Oh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, it's going to be like... Yeah, just give me like, a, you know, an hour's walk, maybe. So, <laughs> Yeah, I haven't yeah. been to San Francisco in a while, but I don't remember it being that big. But it's a movie. They want to put you in the movie places, the places where you recognize things. So, True. Kirk figures out that they need money, and he pawns the glasses that McCoy gave him two movies ago, possibly trapping these glasses in an infinite time loop. Oh, no. A causal loop. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Us is known as the, the bootstrap pop paradox yeah. because it's impossible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but apparently time travel allows it to happen because you already because did. Because these glasses were never created. They always exist. 
Are they not the result of a ship of Theseus type of scenario, where parts of them are replaced? It possibly could be. Either it's that, where they're they get repaired over the time at some point or other, or they never got made by anyone at all and are just trapped in this weird little loop in history. Though the, uh, the lenses would probably be replaced at some point. Then would they still be antiques? Depends when the lenses were replaced. <laughs> but the, the frames themselves are infinite uh, years old, so, uh, you know. So the uh, two non-whale teams find some leads in the quite prominent uh, Yellow Page ads. I can't tell if this movie is sponsored by the Yellow Pages or if it's just supposed to be a joke. I think it's hilarious. So Imagine advertising informing people. <laughs> so uh, Chekhov starts asking everyone, like random people on the street, if they knew where to find nuclear vessels, because it's the one thing that anyone remembers him doing in this movie. Yeah. And also where Alameda is. But every <laughs> single one of them says they've been here before. Sulu says he was born here. And they also say the city hasn't changed that much. How do they not know where Alameda is? Well, uh, maybe everything across the bay was uh, consolidated into the greater Oakland cityscape at some point. And so, you know, Alameda is just part of Oakland now and in the future, maybe, I guess. There was a nuclear war. There was. <laughs> it destroyed, it destroyed Alameda, Alameda but not San Francisco. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> look, look, we just call that the West Coast Wasteland, okay? <laughs> oh, shoot. The, the original fallouts do take place in the West Coast. Yeah. Darn it. The Boneyard. The Boneyard. Yeah, it's called the Boneyard for a couple of years. And that's LA. San Francisco was called something else that I can't remember now because I barely remember fallouts one and two. Yeah. <laughs> so Spock quite publicly knocks out a kid on the bus for playing music too loud. And everyone's happy. Yeah, that's relatable. It's a nice song, but relatable. Yeah. I mean, apparently this is based on something that uh, happened to Nimoy. He was in line at a supermarket and someone was playing music too loud. And he was like, I would so nerve pinch the snot out of this kid. <laughs> that's the dream. Uh, Kirk does his best to explain swearing as a necessary part of language in this time period. Spock never quite gets it, but uh, it's just played up for comedy. He just says damn a lot yes, uh, uh, you have to use colorful metaphors in order to uh get people to uh pay attention to you otherwise they just ignore you you know yeah it's a great use of um that that dark place ability to do something wrong the right way and to make it funny mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so they arrive at the bus's destination which is the cetacean institute a museum dedicated entirely to whales which is actually the monterey bay aquarium <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> they didn't even change the logo, oh, yeah? which I thought was hilarious. Uh, they've seen advertised around the city that this place has two humpback whales currently on exhibit, which uh, doesn't make any sense. But I mean... They join a tour group led by Dr. Jillian Taylor, who gives an overview of how endangered whales are in front of some really gory whale hunting footage in the background. Yeah. So uh, don't be eating dinner during this bit. No. <laughs> Yeah, but hey, that's the reality of it. They move on to see George and Gracie, the humpback whales, who are in a massive saltwater tank and probably large saltwater tank. Which yeah. is actually kind of impressive, but, you know, yeah, no, this works for I mean, the way it's configured, it, feels, it seems like you would go downstairs and watch the side of the tank and not see the whales a lot. Yeah. You know, you do what you can with the sets you've got. Also, George and Gracie were uh, a comedic duo from the mid-20th century, for those of you who don't know them. Except as whales. So Kirk's quite excited at their luck. They found a male and female humpback whale in a confined space. So all they need to do is beam them up and leave. Hey. 
This is massively convenient. But Jillian soon reveals that they are on the clock because the two are going to be moved from the museum and returned to the wild in a number of days because of funding problems. Again, our old nemesis, capitalism. Now, now they do mention a few other things uh, uh, later that uh, that you know, there's the logistics and the cost, of course. But uh, there, there's maybe some reason they don't want to keep them there uh, for very much longer because it'd be bad for the whales. I mean, it would be very bad for the whales. <laughs> yeah. I think we're jumping a few scenes ahead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. They just hit. <laughs> now they go down to a better underwater view of the whales, but uh, Spock's missing, and they can clearly see him jumping into the tank to mind meld with one of the whales. <laughs> yeah. As you do. Some good, good reaction shots from everybody mm-hmm. in that scene. They've got a couple of amazing old ladies in this movie. They do. They do indeed. I have personally argued for them to get awards of some kind, some sort of recognition as actresses. So uh, Jillian is pretty understandably upset and kicks both of them out of the museum. Uh, <laughs> Spock, however, was able to communicate with the whales, including their intentions to uh, take them to the future, and the whales seem to be broadly on board with the plan. It's like, oh, the future where we uh, get, get the entire ocean to ourselves and no one's hunting us anymore? Sign me up. <laughs> Uh, walking home, the pair is spotted by Jillian, who offers them a ride, which is, I don't understand her at all, but fine. It's like, hey, you two possibly <laughs> dangerous people who crazily jumped into a whale tank need a ride. I mean, she says she's a sucker yes. for a hard luck case, and they seem harmless. Yeah, and she has a tire iron. Yeah, right where she can get it, too. <laughs> so don't try and mess around, anybody. <laughs> uh, she's confused by the pair's behavior, but is interested in their interest in whales, and also the fact that Spock knows that Gracie's pregnant, which no one knows except Gracie. Dun, dun, dun. She agrees to talk over dinner. Spock, however, hates Italian food, I guess. And uh, so they drop him off you back like at Italian? the park. It has yes. meat in no. it. Oh, yes. Not all it's of vegetarian. it. It can be vegetarian. Maybe it's not vegan. I mean, it can it's be. It's impossible for Italian cuisine to be vegan. No, it's not. It's just tomatoes and pasta? What's that? It can be. I live with an Italian, and I have learned to cook many Italian things, most of which are vegetarian and a lot of which are vegan. That's impressive. The entire cheese thing is Italian-American, which is an entirely different beast than Italian. Ah, I, I believe I, that. This, this is also San Francisco, so it's probably italian It probably is. And also, they I, they ruined pizza somehow. We'll get to that, but I'm not sure what they're doing with pizza in this town. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was completely focused on the beer for that scene, but we will get to it, yeah. So uh, Chekhov has located nukes. They're on the aircraft carrier Enterprise, and the pair is going to beam in later to harvest the particles they need. That's all the information we need from them right now. Uh, Scotty and McCoy have found a plexiglass factory where Scotty's posing as an expert to get a factory tour, and Sulu's flirting it up with a helicopter pilot outside. It's kind of adorable. Scotty doesn't have any funds to buy the mass amount of plexiglass they would need to hold a whale tank. Um, but he does offer to trade for large panels of plexiglass. In exchange, he's going to show the head of the company the chemical formula for transparent aluminum, uh, something the guy, <laughs> you know, probably invented anyhow. Hopefully. I mean, he did Hopefully. now. I'm wondering if there are less responsible time travelers while at the same time lacking malice. And just two more reckless guys who shouldn't be allowed in the time stream. Now, uh, when I was much younger, I thought he was giving the formula so that they could get this guy to actually make transparent aluminum, but you know, now that I'm a little bit older and able to pay pay, pay, pay better attention, 
I now know exactly what's actually going on. That's what I always yeah. thought, too. But, yeah, no, they get giant panels of plexiglass. Right, which is, you know, like, one, six of one, half dozen of the other. Like, it's not, it's a pretty simple, implicit deal. It's not Qui-Gon Jinn betting on a pod race. You have, for some reason, decided that the whale tank that is inside your spaceship must be clear. And therefore, you have created a problem for yourself that you would not otherwise encounter. True. Like, well, we could just put giant pieces of steel in here, but no, we need to be able to wave to the whales. Okay. What are you going to do with all that blue screen? Just going to throw it out? No. At the Italian restaurant, Kirk and Jillian order two large pizzas. They each order a large pizza. And this bothered me because you, but you shouldn't do that. You can't each eat a large pizza. Then later when they get the pizzas to go, they wind up with a tiny personal-sized box. I mean, it's lunch the next day. Look, they're yeah. going to save Earth. They're that confident they're going to call their shot, okay? <laughs> I'm so confident we're going to survive the time travel trip to the future, the release of the whales, and the probe. I'm going to bet sausage and ham. <laughs> well, it's pepperoni and mushroom with onions. Pepperoni and mushroom. I was, I was gambling in that one. <laughs> Where's the pizza at the end of the movie, though? Oh, damn, they got to go back for the pizza. <laughs> I just, yeah, they should have had one scene of them all sitting around on the bridge trying to figure out how to eat, like, old-school, old-timey pizza. You don't know if they've eaten pizza. Have we ever seen them eat as food cubes? Yeah. Yes. You got fork and knife. You got crust first. You got roll. I like the New York fold, but, you know, I had to adopt that when I moved. I mean, yeah, it exists along a two-dimensional plane, basically. Yeah. That's how you make pizza. That's how some people make pizza. So, over pizza and really bad beer... Um, they discuss whales. Kirk can't tell her what's going on to start, but um, then he can later. But she doesn't believe him anyway, so, you know. Yeah, once, once they establish the premise that she's not going to believe him, he can tell her. <laughs> and he has a face journey when it comes to that beer. Yeah, he does. <laughs> well, this is what people of the century drink. Oh, dear. Yeah. So even though she thinks he's definitely either lying or crazy, she does reveal enough to tell him that the whales are n not just going to be moved soon. They're going to be moved tomorrow. And that's convenient. It's, it's both convenient, but also, I guess, if why are you giving like tours the day before then? Yeah, just because business as usual. <laughs> they're, doing, they're doing everything they can to make money to keep the whales. There's a pop and lockathon happening that night at the, <laughs> the marina. Just, there's like a big thing in the background, 10,000 more dollars when we keep the whales. So being even more on the clock, Kirk freaks out and makes them leave. She has to pay because they don't use money in the future, of course. Very convenient, Kirk. <laughs> Today, you don't use money in the future. Not like when you had the mining episode with mud. That was, that was a resource allocation issue. They have mentioned credits before. So they uh, head back to the park. She still doesn't really want to help the crazy spaceman. But she still trusts him a weird amount for him being a crazy spaceman. It's like, well, I've probably hang out with a number of folks that are probably crazy spacemen of various sorts before. So this is maybe par for the course. But this one seems more, a little bit more believable than most of them. They do have, I, had to, I, you know, I always have to skip past lots of stuff. But this is Kirk's most famous comic line. The, no, you're from outer space? Like, no, I work in outer space. I'm from Iowa. Like me. <laughs> but he's dressed nicely. You know, that counts for a lot. Mm -hmm. That's true. He's got that spiffy new uniform. Uniform-esque civilian clothing, yeah. So on the Enterprise, Chekhov and Uhura have beamed into the reactor room and begun harvesting particles. Uh, it takes a bit, 
and they are noticed because of an energy drain in the engines. Ahura is able to beam out, but the transporter's on the fritz, or there's too much radiation or some such thing, and Chekhov is captured. Yeah. Hmm. Very accurate portrayal of naval ships, by the way. They did film on a naval ship, just not the Enterprise. It's a non-nuclear naval ship, because you're not allowed to film on a nuclear <laughs> naval ship. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I, I will uh, also... My, my science nerd side is be like, that's not how fusion reactors work. You start <laughs> extracting random photons that are going through your casing there. No one's going to notice a power drain. <laughs> yeah. No, like, there's nothing special about any of the energy that's getting out of that shielding. It's like you're just... Don't you have a solar panel in the future? You need those photons to power the boat. Make boat go. <laughs> but they're just... Warming up the plating. Okay, I guess. Never mind. Moving forward. <laughs> the Chekhov is taken to the most ineffective interrogator in the Navy, who <laughs> lets him grab his weapon, which doesn't work because of radiation or something, then just lets him run out the door, and then they chase him for a while until Chekhov accidentally falls off the ship and is taken to the hospital. Well, maybe they weren't taking him super seriously because he just seemed like he was completely out of his mind. Yeah, they they did they did call him the R word. So. Yeah, they did. You don't even have a guard on the door. <laughs> no. the, the guard was on break. I, I, I have shrug. not. I will admit, I was never in any of the armed forces, but I get the impression from people I know who have been they take things a little more seriously than this generally. Yeah, I I wouldn't know what the SOP is for that. But I would imagine, oh yeah, having been in the Navy, um, <laughs> that when people are on your ship, you kind of put them in a brig and then you'd probably give them to a federal agency and then they would do the, uh, do the interrogation. You, you don't interrogate them with their gun sitting between you in the middle of the bridge? With, um, in, in the very same place where you kidnap them? No. Yeah. <laughs> Like, let's remove them from this entire situation first. So that just in case something goes horribly wrong, we're, we're not making things more complicated. The, the uh, next morning, Jillian shows up to work to find the whales gone. They were taken in the night to avoid a media circus because that's how easy it is to move whales, I guess. The pop and lockathon failed. <laughs> but Dang it. Do you like the San Francisco Chronicle? Do they have a reporter coming at noon like you did what? <laughs> you were going to write a story? <laughs> she said it was going to be a media circus. Yeah, what whales? <laughs> and then, like, there's going to be a media circus over an empty aquarium tank. Uh, she immediately heads to the park to find Kirk, because he said he could help, I guess. And uh, she walks into the cloaked Klingon ship. Also, she sees Sulu lowering a plexiglass with a helicopter into apparently empty air. Yeah. Yeah, Scotty's up there, too. He's just kind of floating with his upper body being disembodied like that. It's fine. So you're telling me in, in the span of, what, 24 hours, 36 hours, there was nobody in a public park in San Francisco that could have walked into this thing? Nope. No one saw the smashed trash can underneath the foot of the thing, or the giant indentation it made in the ground, or noticed that they've been flying massive panels of plexiglass back and forth on a helicopter through the park. So maybe everyone that's been going to the park has been... Uh going to the uh, uh, California Academy of Sciences uh, or <laughs> hanging out the uh, the polo field instead of wherever this happens to be. And they're just really distracted for this day. It is San Francisco. They might have just all been really high. 
Like, oh my god, there's a wall here. Dude, did you see this wall here? Visible man. You, you guys are attributing to them far nobler um, motivations than me. <laughs> uh, they beam Jillian aboard, because she's found the ship anyway. Uh, she has just enough time to be mildly confused before her locates Chekhov, and they recruit her to help them break into a hospital. Um, because I guess she's the only one who knows what doctors look like. <laughs> we need I your mean, help. And they do immediately cut from tell us what doctors look like yeah. to them I mean, wearing she, scrubs she in a hospital. They had to wear scrubs for that, so they may not. I guess if she was really helpful, she said, look, just wear a polo shirt, have a clipboard, and a bouquet of flowers. You can go anywhere in that hospital. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here to deliver these to uh, yeah. Chekhov Gunabited. There we go. <laughs> they carry Jillian in on a gurney to disguise themselves. McCoy is disgusted with the state of medicine and technology in this place and gives a woman who is waiting for dialysis some pills on their way to find Chekhov. They arrive just before the surgeons are going to cut his head open. And McCoy gives the doctor a drumming down for practicing the best medicine he knows how. <laughs> like you yeah. might be a world expert in brain surgery here, but you are a butcher man. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that we have future technology? Yeah. What, who is this crazy person? What is happening? So they lock the doctors in the closet and fix Chekhov with their future doodah. Head thingy. Uh, the police give chase. On the way down, they pass the old woman again, who's very excited about her new kidney she just grew. And the team is trapped in an elevator that's empty when it gets to the next floor. Yeah, that was a quick diagnosis, by the way. She's like, wow, I don't feel like I need dialysis. And the doctor's like, really? Puts his hand down her throat. He's like, oh, you do have new kidneys. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It's like, oh my god, new kidney. <laughs> new kidney, who this? Yeah, yeah. Mir the miracle workers at this hospital are only on the diagnosis end of things. So. so they all materialize in the park because they just beamed out of the elevator. And they're prepared to find them some whales with the radio transmitter tag that uh, they have to track them. Now that she trusts them enough to give them the transmitter number. They could have saved <laughs> themselves a lot of trouble if she'd just done this earlier. But I guess you don't want random people to know a radio transmitter code. That's going to do them no good because the whales are in Alaska. I mean, look, whales can fast travel if they've been somewhere. They could be back in San Francisco at a moment's notice, you know? Look, if they can transmit sound through space, let's just accept that physical laws maybe don't apply to whales as much as we thought. That That's true. <laughs> it might. It might. Wait, does, this might explain cetacean ops. So it's all those... Um... It's all those pic all those paintings of whales flying through space are way more literal than we take them. Surprise! <laughs> so Kirk says goodbye to Jillian, but she uh, grabs him when he beams aboard, and they don't have time to discuss the matter. Also, it's great that transporters can adjust for mass on yeah. the fly like this, otherwise you'd have a lot of problems. Yes. <laughs> well, well, I have her arms here. Uh... <laughs> so they fly out to sea to track whales. Spock also has a bit of a problem because it's impossible for him to make the calculations necessary to return them to their time and account for an indefinite amount of water and whale that they're going to bring on board. So uh, McCoy has to teach him how to trust his gut, which will finish his process of being back to his old self, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of got a it's Spock's character arc. Yeah, which is a bit of a weird one for this. He's like, I can't do these incredibly necessary specific calculations that will keep us all from dying, and I consider that an issue. Goy's got, you need to learn to trust yourself. <laughs> Just guesstimate it, son. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, okay, we are going to fly into the sun, but <laughs> fine. <laughs> but best guess is good enough for this, right? Yeah. yeah. So they find the whales, uh, but they're not the only ones. A whaling ship has also given chase. 
The bounty arrives just in time that the whale harpoon bounces off the invisible side of the ship, and they uncloak to scare the pants off of some whalers. The whalers go, da 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 run away. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Satisfying. They're yes. also like the closest things we have to a villain in this scene. So this movie. Yeah. I mean, they could have blown them out of the water, but, you know, I guess they were being nice. And they're just trying to earn it. But the temporal prime directive. <laughs> oh, that that went out the window when we made these windows. So they beam the whales and several tons of water on board. Uh, it's then off to the sun. The ship's barely holding together, but Spock's gut instinct works fine. And they return to exactly the same time they left. They did, however, forget about this whole probe energy drain thing and <laughs> immediately start to crash. Yeah. Lots of questions about the range of effect on that and how close the Earth is to the sun. I feel like the answer is not very, actually, but... Yeah. yeah well, there was some stuff about breaking thrusters and they are going, like, warp 10 billion <laughs> or something like yeah. that. And, you know, weird stuff's going on here. So uh, they just set it up so they'd calculate that they just happened to land, uh, pop out in the right place, I guess. So they splash down under the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, then the shoddy... Klingon cargo bay won't open, because nothing on this ship works. Dang it, Vulcans, you, you had one job to make the ship Scotty perfect. Scotty bravely runs away, and Kirk has to go in. The crew evacuate, Kirk swims down to blow up the emergency release on the bay, and lets the whales out into San Francisco Bay. Different kind Hooray. of bay. The whales do a little dance, uh, the probe leaves, Earth is saved, let's never question this again. Okay. Kirk and the rest of the crew, though, still need to stand trial for their whole stealing a ship thing. Uh, given that they just saved the world, they're all let off with a warning, except Kirk, who's demoted to captain and given command of a ship. He's definitely thrown to the briar patch on that one. So. Yep. He says goodbye to Jillian, who's now head of Wales or some such thing. And uh, Sarek is proud of Spock. He's back to him old self. She's the only scientist on Earth who knows what how humpback whales work. And they put her in... Without even getting into that. A ship that's going somewhere else. Well, they're not very specific. <laughs> she says, science ship. And we do later learn that there is a Federation Navy. I mean, Federation science ship makes even less sense. Starfleet's Federation science ships. I have many problems with this scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, cool, woman from the past. Go do science. Oh, okay then. <laughs> Maybe it's just like they put her on a spaceship, but it's just going to keep maybe, orbiting Earth. Maybe. I mean, I've played Stellaris. I know how it is. This is how they handle uh, temporally displaced people who just show up like they tend to in this series. They just send them up on a ship. They say, okay, we're going to integrate you into society. Step into this freezer pod. And then they just blow them back backward in time through the sun again. Lots of questions about why everybody doesn't warp themselves around the sun all the time. Yeah. Well, the calculations are just hard, man. They have man. calculators. Sure, it's not a Spock, but they have calculators. <laughs> Spock's just better at this than other people. Spock's able to do math three. I know Cleons aren't great with spreadsheets. Like, canonically, they're not great with spreadsheets. But, like, the Romulans have to be good with this kind of stuff. That is true. The Romulans should be able to do this whenever. So I, th I think there was a book about that. Basically the entire plot of the new Star Trek movies. <laughs> I was about to say, you think the Romulans would have done that when their son exploded? And I'm like, oh yeah, right. Their son exploded. <laughs> that would make it hard. Maybe their, their, their son exploding was the result of their, their time travel adventures. Uh, did you go with your gut? Yeah, no, you can't go with your gut on that. 
well, we went back in time, but we also destroyed the sun in the process. So, eh. <laughs> after all their uh, so after all their tearful goodbyes and whatnot, the whole Jillian's never going to show up again scene. Basically, uh, they get taken up to space dock to find their new ship, which is the Enterprise A, exactly the same ship they had before, but with an A painted on it. Yeah, status quo antebellum, anti whalesome yep. So, like I. I hate saying this. This is not the last time Star Trek is going to do that stuff. Ship blows up. Give us the exact same ship. TNG, of all things, it got this right in their movies. It's shocking. Mm-hmm. I know. They changed it. It's mm-hmm. like, well, we've had the Enterprise D for like 20 years now. Maybe we, it's time to upgrade. It was like eight, but yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> huge, expensive ship they only the made D 12 of. So- eight years of shelf life. I mean, technology advances fast. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the Enterprise-E can deflect a planet when you fly into it. <laughs> the Enterprise-E <laughs> is almost as big as the Galaxy class. It just doesn't look it. It's long, yeah. right? See? It's very strange when you look at that. So anyway, they're back on the bridge, and they're out onto space in their next adventure. Hooray! So what's our next adventure? Oh, you don't, you don't want to know. We got Marvel Comics. Okay. Then we won't talk about it. For a long time, you got Marvel Comics. Oh, that's true. Yeah, they they fight the their equal middle aged counterparts from the mirror universe. <laughs> oh no! <It's> like, so, <laughs> I feel like one half of that pair would have hung it up at that point, but nope, still going strong. So, barring future adventures, that was Star Trek Four: The Whale Movie. <laughs> uh, this one is interesting to me because it's really changed perception over the years. Because now it's like the one everyone knows is the environmental movie, but it was, it's like it's explicitly in the text, like it says in the movie, and it definitely was at the time. It's very specifically about whaling, not environmentalism generally, which I know is a weird distinction to make, but like the way that we view environmentalism now is very different from how it was viewed in the mid 80s. Yeah, it was, uh, I guess environmentalism uh, at that point was sort of piecemeal in a way. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I found this really interesting story that I kinda, I'd kind of come across way back, and I looked it up again for this. The entire whale movement basically spurred what we now think of as modern environmentalism in a really big way. Like, it's, it's actually kind of interesting how they focus so much on whale songs in this movie, because... Whale songs were kind of what they used to get the general public interested in environmental causes. Yeah, I know a lot of the cast was interested in whale stuff. Which is not an accident, because I found this thing. So, like, um, in 1966, the military was trying to record underwater dynamite explosions and accidentally recorded a bunch of whale songs. (laughs) What does that sound? Yeah, they got in the way of the thing they were trying to record. Um, they get passed this on to a cytologist, which is the real name for a whale biologist, um, a guy named Roger Payne, who listened to the songs a lot and recognized that they were repeated patterns and pro- actually a pretty complicated form of communication, possibly one of the more complicated forms of animal communication we had yet recorded at the time. 
uh, he recognized that he could use this to try to foster a public awareness campaign. And so instead of just using these things for scientific research, he got them made into records and basically just gave them to anyone who wanted some. He gave them to a bunch of recording artists, he gave them to news networks, and eventually he got a meeting with uh, Judy Collins, who incorporated them into a 1970s album called Whales and Nightingales that went gold. So that is why whale songs wound up in so much like music and media and other things from the 1970s on. The whale takeover. Then later on, nearer the 80s, uh, Greenpeace got their hands on these things and used it to kind of kickstart a giant environmental campaign, which is what influenced this movie and actually spurred a lot of legislation and international feeling that stopped whaling. Because something that's weird to remember now because Save the Whales is kind of this, like, abstract concept to a lot of people, like, who grew up, like, in and after the 80s. Um, whaling was really common up into the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Like, it started getting banned in the 80s, but it was really common in the 80s. Like, whales were, were nearly extinct for a bit. Mm-hmm. I knew it was bad. I didn't know uh, all that. Like, most countries in the world still did it. Um, they were being used as, like, cat food and things, which is pretty ridiculous. What about all the ambergris? <laughs> no, the precious hamburgers, yeah. So, yeah, this movie is actually, like, a direct... It's one of the media things that kind of spurred on the environmental movement as we think of it now, specifically because they decided to use whales and whale song as a giant uh, public relations campaign. Indeed, uh, and this was kind of at the trail end of that to public relations uh, campaign as well yeah because uh, then you get to the 90s and it's more like you know captain planet mm-hmm. stuff they were even having like uh they they all cited like nimoy and several other people cited seeing the documentaries about whales and whaling on on like um national geographic and things as a direct influence for why they wanted to make this movie so uh you know the uh, u.s was uh you know back in the day one of the big whaling uh, uh, countries as well. Um, but the moratoriums that uh, started popping up uh, were kind of became a thing because the U.S. kind of switched uh, over to being anti-whaling uh, <laughs> during that period. So without that being sort of the case, then whaling would probably still be a big thing, honestly, uh, given the you know, sort of trajectories and you know, various coalitions there. Yeah, we've now kind of moved uh, from most countries in the world doing some amount of whaling to only about six left that do it. Several of them only do it um, traditionally, very, very traditionally. There's there's places that uh, don't use modern equipment very specifically because it's a traditional thing and they don't want to catch too many whales because it's actually against their religion to not use all of the thing that they catch. Mm-hmm. And they don't have any cats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now environmentalism has changed to the point that we could read this as a like environmental climate change movie or any other number of things because it's become such a weird nebulous idea instead of these very specific things of save the whales, save the pandas. Yeah, it is. Well, the the whale probe was all about global clouding, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the idea is, hey, look, if the whales die, we don't know what they're holding up. So maybe that'll destroy us. And now we have much clearer connections to the stability of the environment and the stability of human society. Uh, and we're still not doing it. Like Even with the no. probe, I think people would continue whaling 
nowadays. Probably, yeah. I mean, you don't know what happens to these two whales. <laughs> no, I, I, I can imagine they get cloned a lot, maybe. So I'm sure you can introduce some genetic drift in their offspring. So. Probably, since they have genetic ability to like mate non-viable humanoid species together. <laughs> I think uh, tinkering is only illegal if it doesn't involve, uh, you know, aliens or whales. So we're good. <laughs> there is this, um, there's this weird underlying thing in this movie, though, that they they don't address. They completely forget about this in every other iteration of Star Trek, which I guess is is probably for the best. But they very heavily imply that whales are a fully sentient animal, which fine, I guess, like we haven't talked to them enough to try to know. But also that they're intelligent enough that they are in communication with extraterrestrials, have been for longer than humans have existed. And, I mean, I guess the extraterrestrials just want to know that they're still here. Because they do leave immediately. They're just like, are there whales here? Yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, it could just be like the aliens themselves. That they're, uh, that they're space whales out there? Yeah, that they're, um, they're actually destroying other Earths. And so they're using the whale song to convince their own people... Not to destroy more parallel Earths. as like a, a, a societal outreach <laughs> effort to save the Earths. Like, listen to this whale song. Be socially conscious. And this did have a bit of the vibe of the other thing that happened from whale song becoming widespread and popular, which was also a bit of a problem, where it intersected with the sort of drug expanded mind New Age movement in the late 60s, 70s, and then very early 80s. Um, that decided that whales and dolphins and other cetaceans must be completely sentient and have a human-like intelligence because they're doing something that sounds to us like music. And that's when you get all these weird things like giving dolphins LSD to see if you can teach them to talk to people. Is that, was LSD Whoops. known for its ability to make people cogent and help them learn new languages? Uh, that was the theory. Okay. Somehow. Yeah, when, you know, when you're sufficiently, uh, you know, uh, tripping out on your LSD there, uh, lots of interesting things start making more sense. Look, I have, I have no problems providing LSD to dolphins for the dolphins to take and for us to study. But uh, it would be nice if the dol dolphins were consenting and uh, understood what was going on. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you communicate tripping balls to a dolphin. But <laughs> or as they say in this movie, LDS. Right, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which also has some troubling implications. These movies, oh my god, Star Trek gets so conservative when you start looking at it too much. Because they're carrying on the general idea that drug use must be inherently evil and bad that was being very, very pushed in the 80s with their anti-drug campaigns. So by the time you get to the future, they don't even know what drugs are. Because they were so bad and evil and obviously an advanced society would have no need for such things. Well, I, you know, they may not call it LSD. They may have actual, like, Latruda or whatever. Like, would there be street names for drugs in a society where people responsibly use drugs in moderation? I mean, there'd probably be more interesting names for them, actually. Maybe it's called LDS in the future. That is true. <laughs> it's a religion. It's a drug. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> the, the, the Church of LDS. Uh, Latter-day Saints? No, it's LSD, but misspelled. Lysergic <laughs> distro something, man. It's got chirality. Well, maybe it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you reverse some of the chemicals and it's like even more potent. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, 
We just made it all all the better. Just yeah, we just did do manufacturing techniques. It's super LSD. It's LD super, which is, <laughs> is what it is. I mean, you don't want to do that. I was I was reading something about this not too long ago, and like, you need such incredibly low doses of this stuff already. Do you want to make it more potent? You know, maybe they did. Maybe they made some LSDs. <laughs> <laughs> You know, maybe they need uh, the super potent version so that they can uh, uh, cut it with other things and you can like put it in your like soap or something like that. And so you just get a little trippy when you ever wash your hands. That encourages people to wash their hands. That makes sense. We should try That's that. That's a good idea. We should try that right now. <laughs> See if it helps. <laughs> it can absorb through your skin. So uh, maybe that's how they get everyone to vaccinate in the future too, you know? Again, I'm willing to try it. <laughs> seems like a good idea to me honestly at this point oh yeah so people can disagree with me but it's interesting i remember this from when i was younger i haven't gotten a chance to rewatch this movie in quite a while but i remember from when i was younger this being one of my favorite of the older star trek movies i think it's like an objective favorite i think this is um with inflation like the highest grossing star trek movie yeah it is um, but what's weird is having, so watching them in very quick succession, which I've never done before. I've never watched them like one a week like this before, because why would you? Um, the comedic writing doesn't hold up as well as I think it does in some of the other ones. Hmm. And a lot of the situations that they're in are inherently funny. They're in what should be an inherently funny situation, but for, it's not quite being handled as well as it could be to make it funnier. They're not doing a very good fish-out-of-water thing with this. And the banter between, especially Kirk and McCoy, but the banter between the crew was a lot better in Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock. In this one, it's all falling yeah. flat again for some reason. I, I'm sure my opinion's colored by nostalgia, but I, I always enjoy watching this movie. See, I thought my opinion was covered by nostalgia. Like, I watched this and was like, oh my god, this is my favorite. I'm really looking forward to watching it again. And it's like, eh, it's, it's fine. I guess I'm sort of a little bit in between you two in some degrees. Because uh, I did get some, uh, enjoy some of the, you know, banter, especially with, uh, uh, you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy there. Uh, as Kirk's kind of being not himself, but kind of trying to slowly progress to being himself again because uh you know the, the memory transfer uh stuff there with his katra uh you know it kind of comes off as he has just been downloaded and so all his old memories are like new memories and he's sort of having to sort things out and you know and so you get this moment with like mccoy kind of coming up to him and you know could be kind of a jerk potentially but kind of actually like almost encouraging him with this sort of uh, banter there uh that you know there's some restraint there that, uh, you know, it's being, you know, used to sort of, you know, you know, McCoy understands that, you know, Spock's not there and Spock's not there quite yet and sort of trying to respond as he feels he should, but isn't quite as he used to be. Um, and so there's some good moments there, I'd uh, argue. And I still enjoy a lot of the sort of humorous situations and jokes and things like that. But I guess I don't enjoy them as much as I used to. But that might also be because, in some ways, I've maybe seen this too, maybe too much. <laughs> maybe. So there is, you know, a certain level of you know, worn out uh, uh, carpet, I guess. You know, just kind of going over the same areas a lot. I do think that something that I think is pretty telling is I had completely forgotten 
basically every interaction between Kirk and Jillian because uh, the two of them have no chemistry. It's very weird. Yeah, it's a little weird there. <laughs> it's like, all right, so we're supposed to be here together interacting. Um, okay, so here's we're reading our lines and uh, Shatner's being kind of, you know, ch- silly there, but that's kind of more Shatner being Shatner than, you know, anything else. <laughs> they go through a lot of the romantic motions you would expect of a love interest for Kirk, but they don't. They don't seal the deal, as it were, which is good. I'm glad they end up as good friends or whatever. And then she kind of does her own thing. I, so I think you're supposed to, I don't know if you're supposed to feel that or not. It's it's kind of, again, you. Yeah. It doesn't have to be romantic chemistry. Exactly. Like, I'm glad that they didn't go with a weird, creepy Kirk romance either. But like, they are setting up for one, which is a bit strange to begin with. But like that pizza, the pizza scene should have been really, really funny. And it wasn't as much because the two of them just aren't delivering their dialogue in a way that makes it funny I, i'm always charmed by it you know i so again i, I maybe should be recused from, from this part of the conversation for being nostalgic <laughs> i mean that's fine we are all nostalgic we're all about equally nostalgic of this movie it's fine and, and again i'm kind of in between you two here as far as uh my appreciation of that particular scene uh you know you know i'm still getting a chuckle here, um, but I can very much see both your points. So, <laughs> dang it, I hate being in the middle of things. I'm not saying it's, like, structurally good. You know, I watch I watch a lot of modern stuff. You know, your BoJack Horseman's, your Rick and Morty's, uh, your community, and I, I guess community went off the air, like, five years ago. But anyway, it's, like, like you can look at those jokes and you can see how they're, they're constructed. I was watching the um, conspiracy theory episode of Community, where Jeff makes a fake class and then it ends up with each person shooting other people as part of like a series of nested ruses against one another um, with, with prop guns. I was going to say, <laughs> you're like, okay, like it works. What's that? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not, it's not a ruse. If it's a real gun, that's true. Um, that's manslaughter. So the, like there, there are levels to it. Like for each level of ruse that goes up, as you realize the thing to go around, you're like, Oh look, there's reasons for this and this and this. And then it's like, oh, at the end, there's a lesson about not using prop guns to make a point to your friends <laughs> because that's messed up. Um, that's like, well, the, the network didn't want it to be a bunch of people shooting each other with no consequences. So it's like, well, the ultimate loop is kind of editorial fiat. But like you look at that, and you it, even that makes it funnier because the, the, that lesson is just absurd. And so you're like, okay, I, yeah. I can unpack this and I can watch this scene a couple of times and kind of discover something new and kind of realize this reaction's an actor doing uh, a believable fake reaction. And then this is the same reaction, but it's more real now because the actor's actually trying. And you, you can pare it back and do a lot of levels. I appreciate a lot of levels to it. And you definitely don't have that with, with this movie. It's very much, haha, that's funny, unexpected, you know. Oh, it's, there's one layer to that. Yeah, a very, I guess, um, a shallow sort of uh, experience, I guess. Yeah, which is good enough. Good enough for a movie that people, mm. you know, are probably going to watch once in a theater, might buy on VHS. And I can't really put my finger on it exactly, and I wish I could. Because, like, there's scenes, like, in Wrath of Khan when Kirk and McCoy are bantering with each other. When they're like in a life and death situation, which never makes any sense, but that's how the banter in these things work. And it's like 
funny and endearing and you actually buy them as real friends. And then there's mm -hmm. like McCoy and Scotty bantering in the plexiglass factory that should be, have the same kind of feeling and it just doesn't as much. I mean, we know those characters from the original series. What we don't know is we don't know McCoy Scotty from the original. Like that dynamic is almost completely unexplored. Like the dynamics we get from TOS are Kirk, Spock, and McCoy based. The rest of them are just kind of like, meh, I guess. There's a, a few singular sort of, uh, you know, back and forths that, you know, pop up occasionally, like um, uh, Spock and Yahura, yeah. you know, have sort of interactions a few times that were kind of interesting yeah. and character building, but that's kind of more unusual than uh, the norm here and doesn't really pop up at all in this movie. So when, when TOS kind of shifts to being an ensemble, you have characters who are broad archetypes plus Uhura, and... Uh, and that, that's not anything bad about Uhura, it's because they never wrote much personality for her. She sings sometimes. That's like a talent Michelle Nichols has. Um, so I think it'd be very hard to like mm -hmm. show like authentic chemistry between them because um, because there just isn't anything there to build on. I don't know. Are, are the Spock Kirk scenes working for you? Uh, broadly. Not as well as some other things, which I understand they're trying to do as like... Spock's not all himself yet. Yeah, that makes it harder too, yeah. But yeah, they're just not, like, the Spock trying to curse jokes. I see why, I, maybe I'm getting more spoiled by modern editing <laughs> as well, yeah. but I liked them in the last movies. So, like, Spock trying to curse should be funny. There's a lot of stuff in this movie, and maybe it is possibly that I just watched it when I was younger, and now I'm watching it more as, as like, an older adult than I think I've ever viewed it before, so... That like yep, one's gotten cynical. <laughs> there's well, there's there's a difference between like when you're a kid and you see something that should be funny, you often recognize that it should be funny and find it more funny. As an adult, you're looking for some sort of layers in the thing to make it actually funny. Yeah, the when we watched the original series, we came up with a term called the 300 year old glasses. Right, there's a planet with kids. Everyone who hits puberty dies, but everybody ages really slowly. And it's been 300 years, and some kid has glasses still. And it's like, if that yep. if that episode was better, you wouldn't care. But it's not. It's Miri. It's not very good. And you're like, I'm so bored. My brain needs something to occupy itself with. Why does this kid have glasses again? And it's like, you don't you don't ask that question if you're having fun. Yeah. Um, if you're drawn in. Yeah, I always say that with the like the fan fights. Like I read the thing. I still read some stuff online when people get really ticked off at like discovery for not having the correct ship proportions or whatever yeah that's because you weren't enjoying the story of the episode enough and now you're like well how did they have the space for that instead of it doesn't matter because i was enjoying myself right right and this this is a movie that i think you kind of have to enjoy and once you stop enjoying it there are a lot of questions um and i, I don't want to say it's just a joke as a as a deflection to that but it is it's just a comedy this is one of the first ones that really needs you to, like, not think about it. <laughs> Maybe that's why it was so popular. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, my God, we need to save whales. It's like, but why? Why, does, why is this alien here? Why did they come all this way to find whales, not find whales, then find a whale and leave? What are they communicating to each other? Do we care that the whales are communicating with aliens? Apparently not. Just, yeah. Just that they need to keep communicating with them. And mm -hmm. if we don't have whales, then we can't do that. So we need to fix that. But problem solved. <laughs> this is such, looking at it, such a weirdly American 
way to handle something like environmentalism, especially in the 80s when we were still doing a lot of superpower stuff, which I guess we're still doing now, but we're showing some cracks at this point. Yeah. They aren't really doing a here's why you should care. Here's like environmental things. Like I understand they don't have a lot of time to set up some of this stuff, but the environmental message of this movie is if you don't take care of the environment, something is going to come kill you. Yeah. It's definitely founded on some generalized anxiety. And the solution is, like, I appreciate that the solution is not violence. I appreciate that the solution is, mm -hmm. let's care for things and save stuff and protect things. But there is very much this hit it here and you win the movie type of thought behind it instead of the, this is something you just have to do every day and you have to change how you live and you have to be aware of your surroundings and be aware of what other people are doing. But instead, we just go back there and grab some whales and take them back to the present. Done. Done forever. The whole thing is a little bit individualistic. Because in an individual ship, you know, in this case, but like an, an outside force is threatening you to do something. Every message, like now Kirk, the individual, has to go back in time and fix it. Every message that they really give about this in the show is people need to care more each individual needs to do something they never spend any time and they don't have time in this but i feel like it's a systemic problem across environmental movements uh they don't spend a ton of time going here's some systemic problems that we need to work on fixing it's the same kind of thing that we're hitting with some like climate change and global warming stuff now. It's you as an individual need to stop buying as many plastic bottles and you as an individual need to start eating less meat or using less energy. Never mind plastic bottles are a byproduct of consumerist pop industries changing laws so that they can specifically make a bunch of disposable bottles without having to worry about the consequences like they did originally when bottles started being taken out and companies were mandated to collect their own trash which we all forget about or that the meat industry is like producing a lot of greenhouse gases but each individual not eating as much meat is not really going to change that because we have too much built up structural stuff behind perpetuating a meat industry that holds up a lot of the economy in the united states i'm sorry i, I lost you when you said pop instead of coke <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. My, where I was born doesn't have a specific word that means soda. We switch between a few things. Uh, where I moved, I think, is supposed to use soda, and sometimes I use pop for no readily apparent reason. Yeah, but, like, it is hard to tell a story where, you know, Kirk goes back in time, and he raises class consciousness and makes people care and then alleviates the economic factors which lead them to kind of a forced indifference or, or a constant state of consciousness of inadequate action for uh, for an important issue. It's a, it's a squishier story. Which is true. But they still do a bit of a... Um, they're still doing a bit of... And, like, I don't know. I'm going to criticize it constantly, even though I recognize that it's... That, that it would not be an easy message to get across. Like, they could have the same movie where they need to go back in time and save the whales and bring them to the future. They're basically doing a hard reset on us messing up things in the past. But... They could have tried a little more to get on the message of things need to change instead of why didn't anyone care more? Yeah. And like, yeah. like you said, that that's systemic and it's just what it's built on. Oh, uh, maybe uh, change it up a little bit so that they go back in time, meet Gillian and, and uh, Spock's like, she's important. We need to not take her to the future. 
Uh, because you know, when we get back to the future, we learn that, you know, from her experiences there, she uh, was uh, uh, a founding member of some organization that actually went out and spread, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, a wider uh, understanding of these uh, these issues, and was able to actually uh, engage in systematic change. That was maybe perhaps too late for the humpback, but it was able to save a number of other whale species. And so, in the future, they're able to sort of appreciate these things because of these sort of unified coalitions that uh, you know she joined with a bunch of other uh, you know people with. Uh, but uh, that's not the movie yeah, we got. That's a good idea. That's a good, that's a good way to spin it. Yeah, then you can do a city on the edge of forever, but. Slightly less creepy. It's a, li- it's a little Edith Keelerish, but it's still good. It's still good. So the idea is sound. I mean, it's not like they didn't rip off two episodes of the original series for the motion picture. So I mean, let's keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? This isn't Nomad. It's it's doing the same thing. It's bigger. It's a cloud now, and it paid the toll road to get to Earth. Okay. It's yeah. It's a weird giant Giger-esque cloud. And creepy as heck. I like it. <laughs> so uh, do you guys want to? Uh, hear a little about a little bit about the International Whaling Commission. So uh, it's a uh, international body founded in 1946 that was basically set up to encourage sustainable whaling practices. Uh, and so it's sort of like you know we're going to have these rules as far as how you do it. So if whales have calves with them, you probably should kill them because then you're basically killing two whales for the cost of one. Or for the acquisition of one, I guess. Uh, and so, you know, they had a bunch of rules out there as well as sort of whaling like um, limits and things like that. Um, but as we sort of already talked about during the, uh, the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, there's sort of, you know, an upwelling of support for, you know, uh, you know, having more limitations and moratoriums and things like that on whaling. And so the IWC actually in uh, 82 is like, yeah, we're actually going to have a full moratorium here. And so in 1986, that moratorium went into effect, which is also the year this movie came out. And, uh, you know, whaling was solved forever. Actually, it wasn't, but, uh, you know, that was sort of the attempt there, but, uh, it was also very much a case that if, you know, as I mentioned, you know, if there wasn't sort of a change in perspective for the U S then the building up the coalition of uh, member states of the, uh, the IWC, would not have done that. Um, but they were all pulled off. And so the, I think the only uh, uh, nation that ended up voting against it uh, was Japan, which then also kind of has its own current shenanigans going on with the uh, whaling. Um, so the, the sort of moratorium went in to uh, sort of discourage a lot of whaling, uh, you know, because like, you know, we're kind of running out of whales, guys. This is what our current plan here isn't working also, people kind of are not so keen on us whaling in general. So, you know, um, so uh, so a lot of countries either cut back uh, or banned it entirely at that point. But once again, Japan kind of was doing its own thing and they used a, uh, a sort of special out in order to keep up their whaling industry because they were doing it for, quote, scientific research. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, we're, uh, you know, it's, they're mostly going after specific sort of whales, but occasionally picking up others in the process. Uh, it's like a mink whale or something like that. Um, but, uh, and a few other sort of, uh, you know, uh, species there. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, and so they would go out and basically just kind of keep whaling. 
at reduced rates compared to what it was, but they were still doing it, uh, including in like international whale, uh, uh, whale preserves, which is kind of a big no-no even then. Uh, and so there's uh, was a, a, lar- a, a lot of uh, outcry against their, uh, their whaling industry for the longest time until the, uh, you know, the middle of this last decade where they're like, you know what, we're just kind of kind of say screw it to all this IWC stuff and just kind of go back to whaling in our own territorial waters without just any limits. So uh, screw you guys, we're going to be awful on this particular issue here. So so Japan's kind of the uh, the odd one out as far as the uh, international community goes at this point. So uh, that's kind of some information about the IWC. Which is like, uh, you can tell things get really bad when an industry like that decided that they had to self-regulate. Yeah. <laughs> which was happening right before this because the uh, the humpback whales did get a moratorium on hunting for a while. But one of the things that spurred on the Save the Whales movement was the idea that as soon as their populations increased, they'd go right back on the hunting list. Mm-hmm. They'd end up right back to where they were before. Which has been criticized as a flaw in current environmental practices because that's what's happening with wolves exactly now. Number of years of reintroducing wolves to you know Yellowstone and other spots. And it's like, oh, no, now there's wolves everywhere. Let's start hunting them again. It's like, come on, guys. We don't have a case study for what would happen without whales. But we have these interesting... uh, There's been a bit of a shift in our thinking on environmental practices like this because there was for a bit this, this vague idea. We didn't understand the interactions in environmental stuff very well. But there was sort of a vague idea that something at the top of the food chain probably wasn't going to affect things as much as if you remove something near the bottom, like, you know, pyramid structure. But we got an interesting case study, which I think I may have briefly mentioned in an episode way back, with wolves being reintroduced to Yellowstone, uh, because the fact of an apex predator being introduced into a location, not only does it help keep the population of various animals down, which of course you can also do through human hunting, which is what we do with deer and other things that have been affected by the loss of large predators in North America. Um, But the thing that people didn't actually predict was how much having predators in the environment changed the behavior of prey animals to the point that the pathways and other things that were being used by deer and moose and other uh, prey animals and herd animals in Yellowstone changed to the point that it began to literally redraw the course of rivers in the park because the animals now had to avoid open spaces and waterways and other positions that would make them vulnerable to predators, which in turn uh, reopened up certain habitats to beaver populations that had been sort of driven out by how many large herd animals were moving through the area, which then changed river courses back to where they were when the beaver dams were built. And it basically redrew the entire landscape just through the fact that they reintroduced an apex predator. Hmm. Interesting. Sort of a series of dominoes in a way. Now, I don't know what that would do with whales. They probably introduce a massive amount of food into deep ocean ecosystems, and they definitely do something to the krill population. Yeah, I'm definitely liking... Because uh, they eat a lot of krill. Definitely liking those documentaries that show stuff at the deep ocean. It's a weird-ass place. It's, that um, it is. <laughs> it would be great if you could see... Yeah, if the movie could more organically integrate some of those chains and the knock-on effects of that. Instead of having a giant sausage with the ball on the end, shout at Earth until <laughs> the ocean's boiled. 
It'd be a slightly more organic consequence for our actions. Yeah, it is a very... Like, apparently Earth is fine. Like, we've had whatever number of mass extinctions. At this point in the Star Trek universe, we know uh, whales are definitely extinct and buffalo are definitely extinct. Well, they're not extinct anymore. Those are the two that they mentioned specifically. It's the whales. <laughs> <laughs> this also leads to an interesting question, which is something that we're mildly struggling with now, of to whether it would be uh, ethical or desirable if you had time travel to bring back extinct species. I mean, we're just going to hunt them again. Unless we're going to restore Probably. their habitats and protect them, then what's the point? Well, we're hitting into this in a little bit because there's um, talk of whether or not we should... Um, there's, there's possibilities of breeding back certain uh, wild populations through closely related species. Uh, we could do controlled breeding and get something that is either uh, nearly the same or very similar to an extinct species. Uh, there's the possibility of cloning back animals. Uh, people have talked about this with woolly mammoths, but you could also do it with other, um, with other like bird species. People have talked about this. Um, and then there's a certain amount of genetic manipulation that people are talking about to get a similar species to re-enter the niche that an extinct species was in, which is very like basically the same thing as the breeding, just faster. And there's a lot of debate. Where does your responsibility as a human uh, begin and end when it comes to something like dealing with extinction in the environment? Yeah. So I guess the uh, the first cut there would be to, are we responsible for this extinction or not due to our actions and general short-sightedness? If yes, then it's something we could think about. If it's not, then it's probably sort of, I guess we could sort of prime directive this and think, ah, that was going to happen anyway. Well, there's a weird line between it was going to happen anyway and whatever we've done, especially with how much humans have affected the environment. And then you also have a thing with how long the animal's been gone, because arguably, we don't know what would have happened in their evolution, but something like a mammoth, there's decent amounts of evidence now that humans may have been a significant part in their extinction. Maybe we could uh, re uh, you know, make new mammoths again, but have them be very good at resisting human uh, hunting just in general. And so they're now covered in body armor and, and, and fire weird gases at us. We did manage to, of course, get on to environmental issues and climate change and how doomed everything on the planet is, which usually means that it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show here. We got our uh, our, our guest host here, got Van Velding here, as well as Gepwin, of course. And of course, our usual contestants of various Star Trek personalities. And uh, some some extra space-bound and water-bound friends as well. So uh, everyone's been rocking up a bunch of points, and it's time to start handing out prizes. So the first one is the Time Warp Prize, which goes to Kirk and Company for traveling through time to save the future. What do they win, Gepwin? Well, they just win the time warp again. 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 I hear it's just a jump to the left. Not, neither of you going to do the next line? Um, I'm, I'm generally aware of Rocky Horror. <laughs> <laughs> a step to the right. There we go. <laughs> so uh, maybe Van will have to bring you back for a Rocky Horror Picture Show so we can... Uh, 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 do, do this little bit, uh, you know, you know, completely. 
Anyway, let's go on to the next one here. The second prize is the Berserker Button Prize, which goes to Dr. Jillian Taylor, because damn you for running off with her rails. I'll get you, Bob. I'll get you. Uh, what does she win, Gepard? Uh, sorry, Van. There we go. I'm going back and forth between you two. She, she's getting one less guy who toes the line between being a uh, romantic and a mentor figure in her life, which uh, you don't need anybody on that line. It's weird. Good for her. Well, uh, hopefully she'll, yeah, yeah, hopefully she'll, uh, you know, not run into that sort of problem on that uh, science ship of some sort. Hmm. Our, uh, our third prize is the uh, uh, causal loop prize, which goes to Scotty, maybe, I guess, for spilling the secrets of transparent aluminum to the plant manager. When does he win, Gepwin? Scotty wins infinitely old bootstraps, which he can pull himself up with. And then we can also try to figure out how many accomplishments in human civilization were never actually invented by anyone and are just the cause of a temporal paradox. I've seen Star Trek 2009. It's Scotty's all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's either going to be Temporal Paradox or uh, that uh, Methuselah guy that uh, from that one episode uh, who is like Leonardo da Vinci or something like that. Um, our uh, our next one is the Colorful meta- uh, Metaphor Prize, which goes to Spock generally for his attempts to fit in with the present day. What does he win, Van? Fucking nothing. He wasn't. <laughs> There's no points for attempting. There's no crying in baseball. You don't talk about Superman's cape. He gets nothing. He gets two whales. <laughs> I think uh, Spock will be good with either of those then. <laughs> Our next one is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize, which goes to that whale probe for somehow being able to hear whale song from across the galaxy and also kind of suck out everyone's power while just casually dropping by. What does it win, Gapwin? Whatever aliens sent this whale probe win industrial designers. Because it's a tube. It has texture, like a sausage. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, that one bit from the uh, the Simpsons uh, Halloween episode from 1996. What is this? Some sort of tube? Ho ho! Uh, our final prize is the What the Hell prize, which goes to the whales because they might be a bit pissed at everyone for, you know, that whole extinction thing and now evaporating the oceans that the whale probe's up to. So, so what do the whales win, uh, Van? They get to be kings of the universe. They rule 75% of the planet Earth. They get a seat on the Federation Council. Awesome. It's their planet. I'll vote for him. The whales are now going to you know, be in charge of Federation policy. The Klingons didn't know when they had it so good. <laughs> oh, so uh, that's all I got here. Uh, feel free to take us away. Well, thank you, everyone, for indulging us in whatever we're trying to pretend this is this week in the galaxy's favorite game show. All right, so that was Star Trek IV. One thing, just really quick, that we didn't get a chance to mention in here, there's this continuing story that some environmental groups uh, didn't like the way that they were filming so close to whales, so they had to bring them to the set and show them that they were actually large animatronics. Yeah. I, I, I know that fact because I listened to our, our go-through yesterday from the Beige and the Bold. Um, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is a nice little fact. So it was good. So... It's very satisfying, but they were good animatronics. Yeah, yeah, they were pretty good. It was pretty good effects on the whales. Now we're gonna splash you with our uh, fake fins here. Also, I learned splash. when I was uh, when I was reading this when they were filming the scene 
uh, in the bay with the with the bridge. They were filming a scene by the bay, and one of the cables that was tied to the animatronic whales got caught on a nuclear submarine and was dragged out to sea. Wow. Oops. Yeah, they don't they don't know when that happens. They they just know if it stops them. That's about it. Well, unfortunately, Van did have a schedule conflict, so he had to go. But you can find Van Velding and the Beige of the Bold podcast, which both of us has been guests on. It's very much worth listening to. It's a lot of fun. So uh, next time, now, there, there was a bit of a contract thing that uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner had where um, anything that Leonard Nimoy got, Shatner got. And uh, Nimoy's directed two movies now. So that means uh, Shatner gets to direct two movies? Well, one movie. <laughs> he gets to direct a movie, and that's what we're going we're gonna to do. It's probably a good thing that it was only one movie, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe we should talk more about uh, cloning and uh, extinct species, so giant ground sloths are kind of neat. <laughs> yep, we got to do it at some point. <laughs> so um, next time, we have the movie that was um, story by... And directed by William Shatner. It's the one that no one can ever remember the name of, because I've talked to a lot of people about doing this series, and, and everyone, including me, can never remember the name of this movie, no matter how many times we talk about it. Well, it is sort of in the, uh, the opening quotes of the Star Trekness, in a way, right? It is. It just doesn't make any sense for its place in the timeline of movies. <laughs> because it's not the final one, and uh, I guess there is some frontier business yeah some kind of i don't know anyway next time we are going to be doing star trek 5 the final frontier oh are, are we gonna have another guest yeah probably you can you can cover that you've been scheduling these things all right <laughs> yes we're going to be uh having a uh, uh, an old friend for the show come back uh, jesse gender yeah who previously got us to watch cloud atlas i really enjoyed it i'm really looking forward to figuring out why on earth she wanted to do this movie <laughs> when there were other ones available? Why not? <laughs> uh, and uh, I suspect, unlike uh, the recording of Cloud Atlas, I'm not going to have to mute myself as I like, get a little uh, misty-eyed about stuff. So, uh, in fact, I might be more annoyed this time, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to see whether or not this or Cloud Atlas was easier to explain. Yeah, so, yes. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, next time... Join us and Jesse Gender as we cover Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, the really, really bad one. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Jesse helps us find God. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. 
you can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>